And so we, we talk about this all the time, I think, in our community about how um, much more intentional we need to be when our students are not only learning English, but they're learning grade level rigorous content. Um, and that's the expectation, I think, uh, comes with the mindset we need to have for this, right? Is that um, all students deserve that access. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores how we can help make an impact on our nation's highest growing student demographic, multilingual learners. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. Why are content-specific and intentional language support so critical for effective instruction of multilingual learners? How can we advocate for multilingual learner perspectives to be included in key processes regarding curriculum and instruction at the school, district, and state levels? What roles do professional development and formative assessment play in the effectiveness of high-quality instructional materials? We discuss these questions and much more with Crystal Gonzalez, Executive Director of the English Learner Success Forum, or ELSF. Crystal collaborates with national experts, organizations, educators, and content developers to increase the supply of quality K-12 instructional materials that meet the needs of the growing multilingual population. Previously, as a program officer at the Helmsley Charitable Trust, she collaborated with national K-12 organizations with a focus on teacher professional development, quality instructional materials, and advocacy for underserved communities. In this role, she worked with multilingual experts to elevate the needs of multilingual learners among grantees and her grant-making peers. Crystal began her career as a fourth-grade bilingual teacher in Houston ISD. She is currently a member of Education Leaders of Color, Latinos for Education, and is a Paharat Next Gen Fellow. Crystal holds a Master's in Social Service Administration from the University of Chicago and a BA from the University of New Mexico. As you'll hear in our conversation, there are really a lot of great takeaways that apply to every level of education, whether you're a classroom teacher, an administrator, or working, for example, at the state level. Hope you enjoy the conversation with Crystal Gonzalez. Crystal Gonzalez, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Thank you for having me, Steve. Appreciate it. It is a pleasure to have you. Um, I've heard about your work through a variety of resources, and it's been kind of a long time coming, I feel like, since we've been in touch. So looking forward to, to this conversation, which will likely be a precursor to another one that we'll have um, with another member of your organization. So I want to start by asking kind of a general question, and maybe a little too general, but we'll get started this way. Um what, what does it mean to look differently at instructional materials for multilingual learners? It's something we hear about pretty frequently, I think. Um, but what are the first questions that we need to ask to ensure that all students, including multilingual learners, of course, have access to equitable learning opportunities? I feel like that's a nice way to kind of ground this conversation. Oh, yes, absolutely. And that is a great question, which we should always be starting with, right? Um, so I'd say the, the first thing, which... And again, we can maybe get into a little bit of the difference between what, what is the role of instructional materials, because I think we get that question a lot, versus pedagogy or just uh, professional learning that needs to come in it. But I think the first, regardless of whether it's materials or, or PD, is really around knowing our students um, and asking some of those deeper questions about the students in front of us. Um, and, you know, I think everything from, you know, uh, and the reason we start with that is because we've heard from a number of educators say, you know, sometimes they're not aware of how many English learners they may have in their classroom. I've heard or, that many times. Yep. <laughs> yes. Or even their uh, English language proficiency level. So, you know, as we, we talk about in our community all the time, you could be completely proficient in English, but uh, maybe still be categorized as an English learner and um, on the higher end of, of it, the support that, you know, um, and so really what, it, what does that really mean as we talk about instructional materials? I think that's the first question for anybody to explore is, you know, who are the students in front of me uh, and what does it look like? Um, and then I think that the second big one um, is really around, uh, so what we focus in, on is uh, access to core uh, instruction. So when we're talking about math, ELA, science, you know, social studies, um, we really do know that, uh, and I think all of us uh, that are listening believe that students should have access to that. And that's where we really think that's where uh, instructional materials can be powerful. And so asking that question, does it have integrated language support 
embedded throughout the entire curriculum, uh, embedded throughout the materials themselves. Um, I wish I could say that that's the norm, but it's not. Uh, and I think as we look at our, our, our student demographics and uh, in some places more, more so, such as in California than others, that's a critical question uh, for not only for our teachers who access these materials mostly on a daily basis, but also for our students um, who are looking at that. So I think those are, um, those are the, the two big questions I would always start with. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad you brought both of them up. I mean, I think they're, it's not surprising that you mentioned those two, but it is um, very, I guess, satisfying and nice that you started off with knowing who your students are. Um, and, and you mentioned something that, you know, I think people can relate to, unfortunately, is that there are many teachers who don't even know that they necessarily have English learners in their classes. So it becomes, you know, well, where's the data that you can get to kind of find that out and then find out more specifically what level there are, because of course it's not a homogeneous group. And then like going further with the relationship building piece, I was just chatting with somebody today and I feel like I'm having this conversation all the time. Now, one sort of hopefully silver lining of the pandemic has become the idea of relationship building as being so crucially important for all students and specifically for multilingual learners, given that teachers were trying to conduct, you know, their day-to-day -day, uh, interactions over Zoom. And hopefully that kind of continues that idea of relationship building. Um, yeah. And then access to core, to, to core instruction, the second piece, but you can't do that without having those solid relationships and knowing who those students are. So um, that's, that's great. And I mentioned like, you know, relationship building is, is, crucial, obviously, for, for all students. And we hear all the time, and we believe um, that good instructions for multilingual learners is good instruction for all students. We hear it all the time. Um, but sometimes I feel like we can get lost in this, in this echo chamber. And I, like, I'm very privileged to have this role where I can chat with lots of folks about different things um, and, and forget that not everyone looks at it that way, right? There are teachers who are, who are, are well-meaning, they're new, they don't really know necessarily how to go about it. So talk with us about how that philosophy of um, good instruction for multilingual learners is good for all students plays out in the creation and the implementation of high quality instructional materials and how we can get, I guess, most importantly, um, everybody on board with that. Yes, yes, absolutely. That's like a mantra uh, we say all the time. What's good for L's is good for all kids, but what's good for all kids is not necessarily what's best for L's. And I love that you bring that up, but I've heard you say that before and I was, I was hoping you'd say it. So go ahead. Let's go. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I, I think that's a, a, a big piece of, of really, you know, one, this topic and two, why we are really advocating for just materials to do a lot more for, uh, for our educators and for our teachers. Um, I think that, you know, one of the things that we, uh, you know, uh, really try to combat around mindsets and what this looks like is this whole sink or swim mentality that uh, goes with the latter part of that saying, right, what's good for all kids, if we just have great teaching, and we're doing everything by the book, and it's amazing, all of these kids should learn. <laughs> and that's not necessarily, uh, you know, I, I think the best approach to this, especially if we go back to that first question you were asking about knowing our students, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so we, we talk about this all the time, I think, in our community about how um, much more intentional we need to be when our students are not only learning English, but they're learning grade level rigorous content. Um, and that's the expectation, I think, uh, comes with the mindset we need to have for this, right, is that um, all students deserve that access. Uh, and so when we talk about good instruction for multilingual learners, what we're really talking about is giving them access to the language that they need at their level to really understand the content. Um, and we, we like to really, uh, and, you know, in our, a part of our, our work at uh, the English Learning Success Forum is really focused on um, access to understanding grade level rigorous content. Um, there's lots of efforts out there around, you know, reclassification and English language proficiency and getting those rates much higher. What we really want to hone in and emphasize as much as we can through materials is how important it is for ELLs to have access to um, the same learning that their peers are having. And that does take intentional and explicit language support. Um, so we, we, you know, as we look across curriculum, for example, uh, instruction materials, how intentional and consistent 
and coherent is that language support, right? Um, I think when I was teaching many, many, many years ago, um, part of it was to like overemphasize vocabulary um, and do that at the very beginning and just go through. And I, I will confess, I even think I had my students writing down definitions. We yep. were going over words in isolation. And these, you know, my entire class were, were uh, students categorized as English learners. And I just think back of like how much of a disservice as a new teacher I was actually doing. And I do think that's, that's really where, you know, uh, high quality instructional materials can play on board here is providing some of those um, best practices, but also coherently across an entire unit. Imagine, yeah. I mean, as an educator, you're going through your curriculum, you're going through a unit and going through lessons. And there's key vocabulary, there's key language, there's key phrases, there's exploratory language and meaning making that our English learners are getting access to maybe every lesson, maybe every other lesson, but there's actual language routines that would really enable our students to have access to that learning and giving and equipping them and empowering them with the language that they need. But if you think about that, that goes back to, uh, you know, imagining how powerful that would be for our students who are not categorized as English learners. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking that. Yeah. Our students, you know, who are uh, our students with disabilities, our students that are perhaps a couple of grade levels behind, that explicit attention to language is going to benefit everyone in that classroom. So why not do it and why not make it just a staple part of our instruction. Um, it's, it's interesting, we did this exercise with a group of uh, state education agency administrators and also district leaders. And we actually went through a lesson and you know, asked them to highlight all the English learner supports that they could find. And maybe because they taught when I did, uh, but you go look for those call out boxes. Oh yeah, here's how you differentiate instruction for English learners. And so they look through this entire lesson and they're like, well, I'm not seeing a lot. And it's not until we do this reveal about explicit attention to language and how it's embedded throughout an entire lesson that aren't always those call out boxes. And that's where we're pushing in our work for not only content developers, publishers, those in the space to say, hey, we could do a better job of making this explicit, but also getting our teachers and our administrators and our leaders to recognize what that looks like in a good curriculum. Mm -hmm. So this is what we're all about. We're really trying to push for this because we, you know, again, we know our English learners need this, but it is powerful for every student in that classroom. Right. Yeah. And I feel like so much of it is about creating those routines that eventually develop the muscle memory. It's like, I was talking to somebody earlier today about sort of the you know, the, the comparing it to, to exercise or fitness or training, you know, you don't just stretch out one time and then you're good for the entire season. Like it has to be embedded into everything you do. And it, then it also has to be kind of personalized to whatever it is you're going to do that day. So take, you know, uh, uh, somebody who's learning English who's coming into a math class, right. You need that to be kind of cycling through, right. And then that routine to come, to come through and that sort of stretching for lack of a better term to kind of, um, be a part of it. And, you know, you, you mentioned like that so much of this goes to, particularly if you're a new teacher and you're relying heavily on a curriculum, uh, and lesson plans that you haven't necessarily built. And maybe you don't have the expertise, which we see all the time to work with, um, you know, to very diverse groups of students. And so you, you cite, uh, you wrote an ed source article that I loved. Um, and, and, uh, you argued that curriculum development and adoption hardly gets the attention it deserves. Um, and I was intrigued. I read on, and you started to talk about, you cited California's focus on mathematics as an example of work that was being done without many people really knowing about it. And I feel like that's my experience as a classroom teacher. This stuff kind of goes on over here and then it gets passed on to me and I look at it and I say, as a new teacher, I say, I'm going to follow all this because this is what's happening. And I have to do it and I don't know what else I'm going to do. I get a little bit more experience and I say, you know what, I can kind of do this instead of this because I have tricks, right? And I know what to do. But regardless of where you are in that spectrum, give us what the implications are of this kind of hidden work and how it plays out in classrooms across that state in California and in the country and what it means for, for multilingual learners who may be kind of, you know, the product of that curriculum development. Yes. And I, I think that has been over the course of the last, you know, 20 years of my career, I think that's been kind of the aha moment for me is that realization that 
there are so many other factors at play than just me opening up my curriculum or my TE and teaching what I'd planned for the week, right? And how that even got into my school, <laughs> I never right. questioned. I yeah, did yeah. What I here it is. And I, yep, yep. And, you know, didn't question that. I, I tried to apply the PD that I got in my school, my classroom into what I was doing. And I worked my butt off. And many times uh, it meant me looking, going to my, my fellow teachers and saying, hey, I'm doing this lesson on this. What have you used before with English learning? And it took a lot of digging up stuff on my own. And, you know, now we're hearing teachers spending countless hours Googling stuff. And I'm just like, man, that is like, they already have a heavy load on their, on their plate. And we're going to ask them to go find additional resources that help them meet the needs of the students in front of them. And I think it's crazy. So this is where we've gotten into actually paying attention to how are these curricular decisions being made across the country. And they differ state by state. They differ district by district. Um, so one of the things, and this is where I did write that article in the, in the California math adoptions that's coming up. Um, right now, the State Department is actually rewriting the framework for mathematics. And it's an exciting opportunity. But, um, and I, I, I do think that this, this whole process holds um, some of us responsible for providing some of that you know, input and what it could look like. Um, but in California, for example, their, uh, their student population, so about 21% of uh, students in California are categorized as English learners. Mm -hmm. And that's over, I think, 1.4 million students, I think is maybe it's a little higher now. That is a lot of English learners in one state. And for us to be talking about mathematics, when those students are in every mathematics classroom in the state of California, how is it that we're not really paying attention to, you know, what, what these materials look like for our students? Um, and so I think that's a key part of really staying on top of some of these processes. If it's happening at the state level, which as we know, these frameworks start, there's materials on instructional material, or I'm sorry, chapters on instructional materials. Um, and those dictate to publishers what they're going to want to see in the next two years to be adopted in the state of California. And districts are going to be state, you know, starting to make these decisions. The state will put out a list of what those materials look like. And I just think that, um, you know, all, all of our voices need to be heard in that process because who wants to be on the other side of that where we're giving another set of really probably better and improved math materials, but for them not again to be as inclusive with these language supports we were talking about at the beginning. Mm -hmm as intentional in mathematics when now we have this opportunity to do so. So I think for, for California, for a place like that, I think hands down, it's, um, it's an imperative. It's an imperative for the whole education system in California. And I want to say, I think, you know, this should be the norm in most classrooms, in most districts, in most states across the country. Um, and as we're thinking about this, going back to our first point uh, of, of it being beneficial for every kid in the classroom, because um, I, I do think, I think, you know, as we, we think about materials in our, and I'm going to say our space in the, the English learner world, right, when we're talking about our multilingual learner directors, our EL coordinators, our ESL, our ESO coordinators, we're typically provided the opportunity to have our own adoption process. And it's for designated EL time, which is required by federal law. Um, I think the question we gotta always ask is how much is that ELD time connected to all the other learning our English learners are getting in the school day? Right. Um, and does that connect to some of the math instruction we're getting, ELA instruction, science instruction? Cause I think this is where we are really trying to bring and elevate this topic up to not only our multilingual and EL directors at that level, but really anybody who's leading the teaching and learning strategy for an entire state or a district, they should be thinking about our English learners. This isn't something that um, you make a decision and say, everybody's got to do it. And then, you know, what this looks like. So we're also advocating for many of our folks that are listening, I hope, to um, be at that decision-making table when it comes to some of these core instructional materials and not be 
beholden to just supplementals or just designated ELD, but it's really critical for us to be involved in all of these uh, curricular uh, decision-making opportunities. Yeah, for sure. When you can get a seat at the table, you should. And when you can't, you should ask for one because, you know, we, we need to be involved in those decisions for sure. You know, and what I appreciate about the work that you're doing is that, you know, after kind of reading that article and learning more about what you do, particularly what you were just describing, um, you've, you've done a fair amount of work to address those challenges. And, you know, looking at your website and some resources, I found some, some pretty interesting stuff that people can look at kind of right away. So talk with us about, um, about the guidelines and resources that you've made available to support teachers working with multilingual learners. Of course, we'll link to that so folks can look. They can't see anything when they're just listening. But I'd love for you to just kind of give us an idea of what you have out there that people can look at while we're on this topic. Sure. Uh, well, the first one I'd, I'd love to highlight because it's actually one of our most downloaded. And again, I should mention we're a, we're a nonprofit um, and all of our resources are free. Um, and we want to make... Uh, a, a, and I guess I should also preface this with, uh, we've got some incredible, incredible uh, people on our advisory committee and our expert, expert, EL expert community is what we call them that have been educators, researchers um, for, for many, many years. And this is what we hope to leverage is the expertise from this community to actually lead this charge. Mm-hmm. Because one, we've been at it. And two, we know that we have a pretty strong research base um, in our community. So what, is, what does that really take? So all that to say is everything on there, you'll, you'll recognize some names, I bet, um, because they're awesome people. Um, and then we really try to uh, really distill it down to content specific information, because what we're also trying to steer away from, uh, which there's an abundance of these, but is content agnostic strategies of like, you know, the things that we typically see in PD think, pair, share, you know, um, you know, sentence frames or just these practices that are just things we know we should do. But what we do is we take that extra step and attach it to the content that that teachers want are teaching and two that students are learning. So um, what we did is we I'd say the, the top resource for any educator listening that they're just like, wait, let me let me explore are my instructional materials doing justice for for my English learners. We have a tool, it's called Taking the Pulse, and it's going back to, I think, our first question about knowing your students, but it- Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah. What do you need to know? Uh, and how is it going in your school or in your, in, in your district right now? And what we've had a lot of people do is download that resource, use it during uh, PLCs, and actually in, use that information to, one, inform other teachers or you know, administrators of saying, like, hey, I think we could- probably get better materials in the hands of our teachers for the next adoption cycle. So I'd say that's a, a, a key resource in that. And then, and a great, sorry to but that's a great place. like such a great start, like a great place to start. And I think there are so many, and again, I don't mean to interrupt you, but there are so many, there's such paralysis out there in terms of where do we start? Like, I feel like you take that first step and then the momentum starts and then you can take the next one. I think so many people don't know where to go. And so I'm glad that you mentioned that one because that's just a great start. But anyway, sorry to interrupt. Go yeah, ahead. No. And yeah. And then let's say the other piece, we've got a tab that's for educators uh, specifically, but there we'll find, you'll find a number of resources, everything from, you know, ELA best practices, must-haves and pitfalls. So what do my ELA materials and, and what does that all need to have? And what do I need to be cautious uh, uh, about, you know, seeing? Um, and then we've got some amazing do's and don'ts of EL instruction, again, for math and ELA is where we're, we have it. We have a lot of featured, um, what we do there is we pair an EL uh, researcher or expert in the field with the classroom teacher. And they actually write a very succinct two page, sometimes three, do and don't about a specific topic um, in specific grade bands. So if you're a math teacher and you're saying, hey, what are the do's and don'ts about, um, you know, the, the, one of them is amplifying and facilitating student curiosity and language. Uh, if you want to see what that looks like for mathematics, I would say the do's and don'ts are some good, you know, good resources to go in there. Um, and then lastly, I'd mention the other thing that I say is, at least what I've seen, is pretty unique to a lot of our peers and, and uh, collaborators in the EL space, 
is that we do have resources for content developers and publishers. So we can, we can sit here and say what curriculum should have, uh, but we also know that, again, going back to there's decades of research that we know what works best for our multilingual learners. And so how do we apply that to materials is the connection we try to make. And so we have a set of ELA and math guidelines um, and these are for improving uh, materials and mostly for content developers. We have heard a couple of PLCs actually doing it um, on their own too, for if, you know, there's a couple of, of schools and districts that are creating their own curriculum, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. their own materials. That's also a great resource for folks there. Uh, but what we did there is we got a group of about 60 plus uh, experts and practitioners from across the country, uh, separate group for ELA, separate group for math, and really try to distill what are those, those key uh, focus areas that we really need to know, hands down must be there for our English learners uh, when it comes to math curricula, when it comes to ELA curricula. Um, so again, all of these are free, they're downloadable, um, but we really want people that we don't want to be, you know, um, you know, <laughs> keeping all of this information to ourselves right, right. and just what, you know, telling people that eh, you should be doing better. We we're like, why not share this out as widely as we can? So we try to get this to anyone, honestly, Steve, anyone who listens. So if a state education agency comes to us and say, Hey, give us a primer on these guidelines happy to do it. Or if a publisher comes to us and says, Hey, we think our stuff can be better. We'd love to, we'd love to talk. Um, but at the end of the day, we want to make sure that we're all collectively advocating for these, um, these, these uh, research-based practices that we, we all want to see in materials. And I think uh, it's twofold. One is to make teachers' lives easier, um, but two, to, to ensure that what we're doing, what's best for our kids. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for providing those examples. I think it's really unique what you're doing, the kind of um, the audience that you're pursuing, particularly the content developer piece. I think that's just great. I mean, um, you know, if, if they're not going to have that expertise or perhaps that drive to do it themselves, then you have the information. So there's not really an excuse not to put it in. And hopefully that that begins to grow. And I'm happy to do um, to do my part in sort of amplifying um, that. Let me let me ask you a bit of a devil's advocate question. Um because there is so much on teachers' plates right now. We're, you know, starting a new school year uh, after the last two years that nobody would have ever predicted, and absolute madness. And, um, and you know, teachers are going to need support to really bring in those high quality instructional materials for their multilingual learners. So, I guess, what would you say to teachers or maybe administrators who are trying to protect their teachers um, in some way? Um, you say they just I don't have the time to 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 put these resources together um, or to do this work. And I almost like hate to ask that question, but I think it's I think it's important. I think it's probably valid, especially considering where we are now. Yeah, it is a very important question. Um, well, I hate to bring it back to this, but I, I do think it's a, a good starting point. Like what what do we currently have in front of us? And is it quality? Uh, yeah, you know, I think. We've saw this throughout the whole pandemic that, you know, educators that had a consistent high quality curriculum and uh, what this looked like, you know, according to your district or state, uh, they had they had a roadmap throughout the pandemic where they stuck to it and maybe it took adapting to virtual environments, uh, maybe finding more interactive ways to engage students online, but versus other teachers, and we did, we did some um, focus groups and surveys with educators throughout the pandemic who got no guidance whatsoever. Um, and so they were the ones that were feeling like they were trying to pull, you know, resources online. We, we put a, even a preliminary resource list on our website to help a lot of these. We got a lot of these types of requests about what do we do now uh, with our multilingual learners. And so I, I do think you've got to really assess, you know, what you have in front of you. And I, I do think going back to some of these self-assessments is one way to just start. And I don't think it will be tremendously overwhelming to try to do everything that you're like, if you see the gaps and you try to address everyone, but pick one or two things that we are going to collectively do to improve the type of learning our multilingual learners get in the classroom. 
Um, and there are some specific ways to do that, right? And so some of them may be looking at your current materials and adapting them, saying they mm -hmm. don't do enough. So can we really uh, see what this looks like? I do want to say, I think uh, we're starting to see a couple of publishers do this, but I'll say uh, even in practices with educators is really looking at language routines in general. Yeah. Um, we've got some, we got some great uh, curriculum being developed, but also uh, some work around mathematical language routines. And there's great paper that our colleagues that some, uh, many are our ELSF staff and uh, I, I give credit to Renee Scarin, our director of our senior director of content and Jack Diekman, uh, who's also part of our team as a project manager. We're authors of that as well. And it's really distilling like, what do mathematical language routines look like? Yep. Um, when you are engaging in grade level rigorous instruction. And I think it could be very um, explicit in that sense of saying like, maybe we can't tackle all seven, let's pick two and let's do that well. But I, I do think that is one thing. And then of course, going back to our conversation around state adoptions with California, oh my goodness, if we are not uh, advocating, you know, uh, to be part of someone representing our multilingual learners as part of these adoption committees, that might be somebody listening to this episode to say, hey, actually, I should be part of that. Right. But I, I would say that might be, I mean, that's a longer term vision for supporting the type of instruction and materials we have in classrooms. But uh, I do think that's critical. If we have no representation of our multilingual learner community on those adoption committees, we're gonna be back here in another three, four years, pandemic or not, right? And really wondering where some of these, um, these better supports for our multilingual learners and English learners are. So I'd say on a very practical level, find out what that process looks like in your district, in your state, um, and, and really try to you know, engage. Yeah. Advocacy, the last piece that you brought up. And then, you know, I, I, you started with, and I just want to reiterate, like, I think the power of assessing your program and assessing what you have and what you don't is just such a great first step. And then just to piggyback on the routines piece, I was really impressed by some work. Um, Grace Kalamanic and Amy Lucenta wrote a book called Routines for Reasoning. It was about mathematical and it wasn't directly geared toward multilingual learners, but I was so impressed by those routines and how they could really work for anybody that I brought them on. And they've been on the podcast before to discuss that super powerful talk about reducing cognitive load and giving kids a chance to understand, you know, to focus on the language that they need to really access that rigorous curriculum. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm totally on board with, uh, with the routines, you know, I'm hearing it more and more, um, and, and which is, which is really nice. Um, so that, that I think is a really nice thing. And then, you know, you talked about the last piece that I already mentioned, you know, the representation, making sure that you're being an advocate, that you're having a seat at the table, it, it kind of relates to my next question, which is around um, like the people who are doing a lot of this work um, are the people who are in whatever the EL department or whatever you want to call it. And that might be a team of a hundred in a huge district, or it might be a team of one. Um, and that's a really siloed approach that I've seen in education that I saw. That's one of the things that frustrated me in my 17 years of teaching high school. And one of the things frankly, that made me want to kind of try something else um, is, do you, do you see that approach as one that is changing right now? Um, and whether it is or it isn't, um, I, I suspect I know the answer to this question. Is it the ideal approach? And, and if not, what is? Yeah. It, I mean, I think to what you're alluding to, I mean, it, it does, it does differ everywhere you go. Right. I think uh, we, we do work all over the country and it depends on where, what kind of leadership, honestly, that is, is really embedded in that. But I do think it's, um, it really is a collaborative effort that has to be there. These silos, I think going back to, you know, you having a tiny budget for ELD supplemental materials and calling it a day and saying, we're doing what's best for L's we've got to rethink that. Like, is this really what's best? How is this connecting what they're learning in math and ELA and science? And I do think it is asking those tougher questions about, you know, what, what role does this play uh, in our school and in our district? Um, I have seen, you know, and again, I think this goes from uh, leadership down 
is just saying, absolutely, we've got to have a committee with at least two representatives from every department. So students with disabilities, you know, gifted, um, you know, uh, L's, DLL, uh, what this looks like, and let's come together and get this group, you know, articulating what our priorities are for this. Because I do think without that invitation, you have the opposite effect, which I've heard a couple of district leaders saying they basically have to go beat down the door at the teaching and learning or the curriculum coaches like saying, hey, can, can we hear what that process is looking like? Um, so I think if we're in positions to make those changes, I do think that's a genuine ask to say, hey, who is all here that represents our entire student community? Um, not the students that are categorized need to have a whole different approach to it, right? Because they're really, and I think this is a mindset shift we're, we're starting to see. Uh, what I would love is for this to be the norm mm -hmm. where L's are the responsibility of everyone. Right, right, right. And where that, that whole idea of, you know, uh, we're all teachers of language, which is the ideal, but I have to kind of bring people back to earth when they're very idealistic about that and let them know that unfortunately that just is not the case yet. So how do we get there? Right. That's right. Yeah. Especially with, you know, I, I think what the tendency of these conversations around our, our multilingual learners and L's come to is like, oftentimes it's tied to reclassification rates. It's often tied to compliance. <laughs> It's often tied to funding, right, uh, of all of this. And I, I do think it's a harder, because of our systems and powers that be, we tend to focus on that because of these powers that be um, and really digging into what is best for the learning happening, you know, uh, for students actually to see themselves in what we're teaching and what they're learning. Uh, this concept of, you know, mirrors and windows in, mm -hmm. in our curriculum. Is that a reality for our kids? If not, what can we do to make that a reality? But I think, I do think, you know, and I, I used to be on all those committees in the school too, where, yeah, you look at these, um, you look at the, the data, you look at the rates, and it's so easy to stay focused on that as we look about, look at progress. And I do think going back to your question about the siloed approach and what this looks like, I think that's one other way we can, you know, really uh, try to do things differently. I think the one, um, and those that have been engaged in our, in our work, I hear me cite this stat all the time, but it's the, uh, I think it's the Econo Economic Policy Forum back in 2017, put out some data about, um, and I hate this term, but it was in the, in the report about the achievement gap Yeah, yeah. You know, between L's and non-L's. And the fact that in over 20 years, we haven't narrowed that. Mm -hmm. And I just think about all the reforms I've been through, all the standards reforms I've been through, all of these things that uh, I do think this is like our opportunity to do things radically different. Yeah. And that's why I'm super passionate about this, Steve. I mean, be honest, like, I don't think we've taken this holistic approach for uh, the, our, our L's in terms of how we think about instructional decisions. Um, and so something has to change. I agree. You know, and I keep coming back to you and I were talking before we clicked record here about um, monitoring and reclassification. And, and I, I, you, I'm not going to go down that whole road now, because you brought it up. But I mean, it is it is a really good point. I mean, I think when people hear those terms, they think of compliance and they think of making, you know, looking at the data and making sure that students get to a certain place. But what a great opportunity when you think about monitoring, where the whole goal is to get input from other teachers to find out how the students are doing and to really get some like really solid, both quantitative and qualitative data on who the students are and what they're. So how do we use that? And I've heard some great things, um, particularly during the pandemic about how, um, EL teachers or, or specialists were getting information about their students through content teachers, through monitoring forms that were streamlined and that were tailored to do more, to go beyond compliance. And that was appreciated by other teachers. And so there you start to see the collaboration, you start to see the partnership, and you start to see, I think, hopefully, um, you know, the, the push toward a better curriculum and better instructional materials. Um so I just, I think that there's such a, such a great opportunity there. And the other opportunity, and this is probably um, 
a good place to kind of to, to, to wrap up at least the informational part of this is um, both teacher preparation, right? Uh, we talked earlier about younger teachers who come in and maybe they have maybe taken one class on English learners, maybe none at all, right? Um, and they come in and they don't really have a lot of information and the, the curriculum is not really helping them very much. And then you have teachers who have taught for a long time and maybe the demographics are changing in their community and they're not accustomed to. So what role does professional development play in this work? And what have you seen in terms of successful professional learning um, in this space? Yeah, that, that, that should go in tandem with anything related to instructional materials, right? And by uh, the way, it could be its own complete like episode. So I don't, I know right. I'm asking a lot right now, but I'm just curious yeah. if we can wrap it up this way. Well, I, I do think, right? It, it, anything that we're talking about instructional materials, you, you can have the best curriculum in the world, but if we don't train teachers <laughs> uh, very in, intentionally and intently on how to uh, implement those great materials, yeah, and really unpack it. I think that's part of treating them as professionals in this space. I mean, every other profession we do, we let people engage, ask questions, uh, refine their craft as they go. It's not a scripted way of doing things, but it's really empowering them to do what they got into this profession to, to, to do in the beginning, right? And so I do think, you know, um, we always say, you know, instructional materials are, are key, but implementation is just as important of that. So right. I do think we've, we've had some different opportunities of what, um, what this looks like with, I'm just gonna be honest, with a variety of materials that maybe do um, sufficient amount of English language development or EL supports in general, and others that don't do it at all. And that's where the power of P PD and professional learning come in. Um, so we, for example, uh, we do believe in content specific professional learning. Um, you know, we, we hear of teachers talking about, you know, some of these content agnostic strategies that how do you know when to insert them and why and, and, and so forth, but being able to engage on, you know, high quality. And, and again, I, I want to, I say high quality rigorous all the time, but if uh, it, I, it goes back to some stats I heard in teacher surveys about teachers saying, oh, well, I'm not a math person, but yet you teach elementary, you have to teach math. Mm -hmm. uh, so you get into the common core state standards, you get into the sunshine standards, you get into that and you realize how complex the mathematics is. Imagine having that responsibility and then doing, you know, the language piece of that. So I do think as we explore PD and the quality of that, our belief is that it needs to be grounded in good materials that teachers are using in their classroom every day. Why not use what they're already doing to empower them around, you know, again, these, these, uh, these, these ways to support the students in front of them. Um, so I do think coming with that is, you know, everything from mindsets and approaching these. And I, I mentioned mindsets a couple of times because I do think we're, this is where it's uh, the most powerful, I think, for students. They know, I mean, I remember being a student, right? And whether my teacher really thought I could do it and believed mm -hmm. in me. Right. Um, and the words and actions you do that, you know, maybe have the, the opposite effect. And so I do think the expectation that um, our students, our students categorize as English learners, they're not lacking anything at all. Yes, I think we have these terms like English learner that are pretty deficit, you know, by nature. But what are we doing to really bring out that what they already have? And how often are we even utilizing their home language in their learning? And I think like, and the reason I bring that up in your question to PD is because these are the things that I think teachers need to feel empowered to say, it's okay. Is it okay if my two students who speak Arabic are wrestling with this mathematical concept in Arabic? Right. Absolutely. It's a <laughs> great point. You know, so I think this, these, these mindsets and just kind of our expectations of our multilingual learners has to come out in any PD and then giving some very practical, concrete support of like how to do this throughout a lesson or a unit or whatever that looks like is just even more powerful for, for many of, of our experiences. At least this is what we've been told in our, our sessions and what that looks like. 
so yeah, I think it's a, it's a key part of it. And, um, you know, I do think it has to be not only good materials, but yeah, what are the added effects of, of good professional, uh, learning on top of that? Yeah. And I'll go back to what you started with me. I think it has to be, and I'm not quoting you here, I'm paraphrasing, but it has to be intentional. It has to be intertwined with everything that you do. Right. I mean, it can't be an afterthought, which, uh, in my experience, and this is going back a few years, but you know, a lot of the PD that I was involved in, um, didn't seem to be deliberately connected to goals and what we were really, the problems that we were really facing. Um, you know, and that, and that's, that's obviously a problem. I do think it's changing. And I think again, with the pandemic when people being able to access PD in a very different way, synchronously and asynchronously, not having to kind of drive across town, gave people a sense of what, um, what might be possible. And again, hopefully that's, uh, something that will, will benefit us moving forward. Okay. Can I mention one more thing, Steve? Please. Yeah. I, I, I just, you know, as you, as you ask that question, I'm like, you know, I do think this goes back to the promise of good materials and good PD, but uh, I can't go without, throughout this, this uh, uh, episode without like emphasizing, I think one key piece that, you know, we hope to see more of is high quality formative assessment practices mm. throughout not only curriculum, but also that goes into good professional learning, right? And I think it's because our students who are navigating both content and in another language, Sometimes if we're not trained and we're not assessing the right things, they may get all the answers wrong, but how do you decipher whether it's a language barrier or challenge or if it's a content right. misunderstanding, right? And I think for, for teachers who are not teachers of L's, they don't really think about that as often. And for our students who we are really, some of us that have been trained in it, right? I think if you've gone through training, teacher programs, you know, you're, you, you're trained in dual language practices and bilingual practices, you probably have a good sense of this. But for those novice teachers, you give a, a end of chapter, end of unit assessment, and one of your English learners doesn't score very well. Do you take that score as it is, or are there, are there embedded formative assessment practices within that unit that gives you as an educator a good sense of whether this is something we should tend more into language, um, you know, or if this is a content thing where we can unpack that at a later time. But I, I want to mention that because I do think that could be the power of good quality materials. They could have these embedded practices that just remind us as educators to point back to that. Yeah. Um, and then on the PD side of it, uh, I, you know, we're, we're starting to see some examples of, um, you know, looking at student work and analyzing student work to really mm -hmm. get a good sense of that. That's the only way you're going to get to know where to focus your efforts. And that's a skill set. And I do think PD uh, in tandem with the materials that that could be a really powerful move for a lot of us, um, you know, a, a lot of educators in this space, because I think that's the additional challenge that we see with our students, right? Is, is, uh, which is it? And are we giving them the right attention that they need at that moment in time? Yeah. And how do you measure whether, you know, um, instructional materials are high quality or if they're implemented well, if you're not assessing, you know, there in, 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 and always with content and with language and in a variety of other ways. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. I think that's really important. I did not, um, have that on my questions, but I'm glad that it was, it was brought up. Um, all right. I want to ask you, I have two more questions before we wrap up, but one is a question that I ask everyone. Um, and anybody who listens will know what that question is. And that is if there's a book or a film or any other resource at all, that's had uh, sort of important influence you either personally or professionally, doesn't have to be, you know, anything super heavy. It can be whatever you want um, that you might want to recommend to listeners. Uh, yeah. So I would say I have two, if that's okay. That's everybody. I say one, but everybody always has two, so that's fine. <laughs> it's hard. So, I mean, my goal was to go for a personal one, but I actually think this this was a game changer for me. Um, I'd say in the last 10 years or so, um, maybe it's when the onset of new standards and what does all this mean for our multilingual learners and so forth. But the first one is a white paper, actually. It's a resource, so it's not actually a book, but... Uh, one of our dear advisors, um, uh, she's uh, been tremendous in a lot of our work here at Yale Success Forum is uh, Dr. Will Lily Wong Fillmore. Um, but she put out a white paper around text complexity and what it means for English learners. So I think if you, if you Google her name, 
put text complexity in L's, I'm 99% sure it'll pop up right of a way. And there's a really beautiful video. It's a couple of years old. It may be even be nine or 10 years old, uh, but it was around uh, kindergartners who were categorized as English learners. And they are digging into metamorphosis and butterflies. And you see these kids in this video and you're thinking, what? How are these kids speaking like this? And I just, I think it's a very practical example of what kids are capable of. Mm -hmm. Give them the right direction and support to actually learn. And the curiosity, it's just beautiful, but it ties in really well with that white paper that Dr. Fillmore wrote uh, with that video. I will say like that changed, I, I realized what I would, was not doing in my classroom for so many years. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is this is beautiful, right? So I think that's one thing. And then the other one is a resource and it's another person I look up to, um, Dr. Aida Walke. And I think she's done a really great job around scaffolding instruction for English learners is the name of that resource, uh, but really gets into the content itself. Uh, what does it actually look like when we talk about scaffolds? Cause I think that's another term we hear thrown left and right. Like, sure do, yep. And like, what does it actually look like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And now everybody's too embarrassed to ask because it's heard so much. Like, what does that it's mean? True. It's true. <laughs> so I would say like, you you said what were like, what were game changers that had important influence on me professionally? I would say those two women who are absolutely amazing. I used to read them back in, back in the day uh, and to be able to work with them uh, nowadays, I'm super excited to, to just share that. But it, that was a game changer in terms of my whole uh, approach uh, to content and, um, and language. Great. Two game changers on two really important issues. And I will Google them and try to find them. So we have a link to folks that they can just link right to them. Um, if not, you know how to find them, but I will do my best to find them for people. Um, last question, as I mentioned, there's tons of great stuff that you and your team are putting out there. So I'd love for you to tell us how um, people can learn more about the work you're doing or get in touch or anything that you'd like to provide. Absolutely. Uh, I think the first one is, is our website. Um, it's www.elsuccessforum.org, um, F-O-R-U-M.org. And uh, there, I think you'll get linked to a lot of other things that are happening. Um, also, feel free to follow us on Twitter or myself. I've, I wish I was much more engaged than I am, but I'll put out some stuff and highlight some of the stuff that we're working on. But um, that, and then obviously uh, there's a way to contact us in our, our email, um, but I'd love to hear, yeah, if, if people want to dig in more with this, I know I can nerd out with anybody on this topic. So um, feel free to contact me directly as well. Great. Well, Crystal Gonzalez, it's been a pleasure to chat with you. Clearly, very passionate about this stuff. I have a lot of good ideas. And again, like I'll reiterate what I really appreciate is that you're not only um, sort of putting out ideas and maybe in some cases, some criticism, but you're also backing it up with lots of great resources and lots of great people um, to, to do it. And uh, as you mentioned, it's all free, which is spectacular. And it's what we strive to do as well by put, bringing you on and amplifying that voice. So um, with that, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. It's been uh, nice being on here with you. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.